Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. Boldly go where no man has gone before. Engage. Engage. Kirk Enterprise, Enterprise. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Captain Catherine Janeway. Captain Sisko. Red alert. Photon torpedoes, fire. The official Star Trek podcast. Engage. Engage. Make it so. With your host, Jordan Hoffman. That, sir, is illogical. And make sure history never forgets. This is Engage. Hailing frequencies open, sir. And we're back. Hello, everybody. Hello and welcome to the next, the next and newest episode of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. You know, I got an email from somebody saying, are you legally obliged to say the official Star Trek podcast after every time you say Engage? And I said, no, it just makes me laugh every time. So welcome to Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. My name is Jordan Hoffman. I'm your host. We got a big week, lots to talk about before we have our guests come in later, film director, film writer, film star, Matt Johnson, who you may not know now, but you will soon. Um, unless you live in Canada. He's world famous in Canada, but he's not that well known in the U.S. yet, but he's a very talented young man. Uh, but before we get to that, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, you know, like a putz, uh, Brian, I left my computer at home because we had some really good letters from fans, as we often do, and I like to read them, and I left it at home. But there was one that I'm going to tell you about anyway. Okay. There was a guy who wrote in from Florida, and he said something to the tune of, um, he was just talking about his love of Star Trek, which I love when people do when they write to me. And this guy said something to the tune of, he works in IT, no surprise there, and uh, he, he works in like the back of an office in a dark area with like, you know, he's created a little barrier with walls, uh, again, breaking no stereotypes there, but he's been keeping Star Trek episodes on a loop for years, it started with VHS, like he created these long playing loops and then DVDs that he had on repeat, and it would go in a cycle. He would start with the first episode of the first show, and then he would go through to the end of, uh, I guess, Enterprise or Voyager, however he did it, and then loop back, and how it's just become white noise to him, but it helps him work, just hearing the show, but he doesn't even hear it anymore, because he's done the cycle many times. Which I just found, you know, I salute this guy. I mean, in a way, that's in keeping a little bit with Cardassian uh, opera, I believe. They do, and Cardassian uh, literature, they repeat the same story over and over again. So, uh, so that's what you got. But hey, listen, if you out there, this is my segue. If you are out there and you want to be like this guy from Florida, whose name I can't remember, and I apologize to him because his letter was great, uh, there is a new product which I was not told to pitch, but I'm telling you about. Uh, they just re-released on Blu-ray uh, pretty much the full canon of TOS, TNG, the animated series, and the movies in a great new box. And it just so happens, Brian the Engineer, I have something for you. 
because they sent me two. I get this? You get this. No way. That's awesome. Brian the Engineer has been very helpful. Oh. And it's got cool packaging. So what I want you to do, because you've been getting more. I watched your unboxing of this. You did watch the <laughs> unboxing. Because I got one at home and I put it on the Facebook page. I want you to. This is fantastic. Take off the cellophane and lift the thing because they beam out. It's yes, really, I remember. Really cool packaging. Um, this buys me like so much grace period when I screw <laughs> up and call Brian in the middle of the night. I'm like, you have to. That's do okay. <laughs> All right. Now, this is audio, so you can't see it, but. Lift the, lift the plastic bit. Oh, we, ha wait. we have the sound effect. Which one is it? I don't have the numbers in front Oh, of I don't remember. I think it's like uh, 11 or 12, 13, I think. Accomplished. Oh, shit. Uh, well, that's, that's good, too. Okay. It, well, you it's, lift it up and... Uh, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And I don't know. Are the I don't think the TNG movies. I think it's just the first six movies. Does it have all 10 Let's movies? Or Anyway, this is in stores now. It's on Amazon now. It's high res. I mean, look, all this stuff is streaming now, but sometimes you want it in high res. There's new behind the scenes videos in there, and um, all right, it's all it's all all episodes of of original series and TOS and the animated. Don't uh, you know your young infant child may be amused by the animated Spock? Yeah, I, you know what? I don't think I've ever seen. I haven't seen too much of the animated series. Well, it's. <laughs> It's not what I recommend going into first if you're a newcomer. Although it is pretty good. I, 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 for, I like it. Not everybody likes it. So that's the good news. Is that it is which fantastic. which movies are on there? Is it all? Um, does it say or is it just the first six? And if they don't have the the TNG movies, you're only. I don't think TNG is on here at all. I think it's just the, all the original series stuff and the animated series. No, no, and then the other. Yep. Yeah. Oh, is it not? One? Is it not the TNG? I don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm so misinformed sometimes. Well, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I know. It's a lot of it's stuff. A, it's hours it's and hours and nice hours of box. stuff. Yeah, it's a nice box. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's the original, the first three seasons, the animated series, and then this one is the movies. Oh, so, okay, okay. So I think it's it's the first six movies. Okay, good. That is good. fantastic. Okay, good. And there's extra behind-the-scenes stuff in there yes. also. Oh there my you God. go. And there's like some cool little placards you can hang them up and put them in the in, in the garage and stuff. Little posters and all oh, that. Oh man, thank you so much. You're in business. <laughs> You're in business. Well, that's the good news. The bad news is, and it's not necessarily bad news. Big news in the world of Star Trek this week. Uh, they they move the dates on us, right? They move the dates on us. <coughs> they change the dates. January May is the new January. This is not breaking news. It happened a few days ago. Star Trek Discovery, the the great savior of, of our lives and entertainment. In a world becoming ever more chaotic, the streets of Manhattan are a little screwy today. Um, in a world that's becoming more chaotic, we look with hopeful eyes toward Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access, and they move the goalposts a little bit. We need to discuss the pros and cons of this, because we thought the show was coming in January, and now it's coming in May. The obvious pro is um, the old cliche. Do you want it done right or do you want it done right now? Brian, which would you prefer? Do you want it done right or do you want it done Absolutely right now? Absolutely the right way. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the good news is that they could have said, no, we want this damn thing now and get moving. And we don't know exactly why. There was a delay. We can speculate. We can say that they're waiting on a particular person for casting who is perfect for the role, but she or possibly he 
um, is tied up making a movie and they're not available until later. And so they said, well, we're going to wait for you. That's one possibility. The other, other possibilities, they're making cool new gadgets and gizmos and practical effects. And that just takes time to build the sets to the way they ought to be. It could be that they're just tweaking the scripts and they need to be perfect. Um, it could be a combination of all these things. New special effects. So um, they're not going to push it. The other reason is, and probably the most likely reason, is uh, Brian Fuller, who is the showrunner, is also producing American Gods, the adaptation of Neil Gaiman's book, which I've never read, by the way. I hear it's good. I'm sure it's good. Either. I've read, um, you know, I've never read anything by Neil Gaiman that wasn't a comic. You know, I've never even read Sandman, which is, I know, a sacrilege for a comic fan. (laughs) Yeah, no, Sandman's pretty big. Um, And I've read uh, some sporadic Marvel stuff. His 1602. I read 1602. I have that, yeah. (laughs) 1602's pretty cool. Um, I've never read any Neil Gaiman that did not have a uh, cartoon illustration element so that's my bad. But you can't do everything. I've seen movies based on his stuff. I saw Stardust with Claire Danes. That was good. I don't think I saw that. It was good. It wasn't great. It was by the director um, who made Kingsman. What is his name? And Kick-Ass. Brian Vaughn. Brian Vaughn? Matt, Matthew, Matt Matthew Vaughn. Vaughn. Matthew Vaughn. Who's Brian Vaughn? Brian K. Vaughn. The, uh, he's oh, a comic writer. there you go. Brian. I was confusing my Vaughn. He did Wild Last Man. And right. Currently writing Saga, which is fantastic. Yeah, that guy rules. Um, Matthew Vaughn, British guy. Um, who did the underrated The Man from Uncle, which nobody saw, but was not that bad with Army Hammer and, and Henry Cavill. Anyway, uh, Sandman was good, and, you know, Neil Gaiman's great. Everybody loves Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman wrote the first thing I've read by... Oh, that's... I just lied to you. I have read something by Neil Gaiman that did not involve illustrations, but it was not a work of fiction. Neil Gaiman wrote a book about Douglas Adams and The ah. Hitchhiker's Guide called Don't Panic. Uh, I read that the minute it came out back in 1994, whenever it was. <laughs> <laughs> I was big Douglas Adams fan. Anyway, um, our friend uh, Mr. Fuller is wrapped up at the moment in American Gods, and it's taking time, and good for him. I mean, I want American Gods to be great. Like I said, I haven't read the book, but I'm sure I'm going to love it. It's kind of in my wheelhouse. So for all these reasons and more, Star Trek Discovery gets a little bump down the line. Now, here's another reason why it's pro. Because as you know, the new show is going to be on CBS All Access, which is a little bit new. It's a scary thing because things that are new are a little scary. And it was going to be the first bit of original content on this new platform. Now, if all things go as they look like they're going, the first thing of original content will be the Good Wife spinoff, the title of which I don't know. Uh, many people like The Good Wife. I have friends who love The Good Wife. I, I personally haven't seen it, so I don't have much of an opinion of it, although Juliana Margulies is very beautiful. Um, the point I'm making is that can be... <laughs> that can, they, can, they can work out all the kinks on that one because there's going to be screw-ups. With anything new, uh, with any new technology, you know, when it's, supposed to, it's all supposed to be live at 9 p.m. across the country, and then they got to work it out. You know, when, when HBO Go was first starting... When Game of Thrones was was really big, uh, the first time that people were really using HBO Go, there were a lot of kinks, and now they got it to work. So they can they can you know, Good Wife spinoff can be the sacrificial lamb. You know, I'm okay with that. Sorry, but you know, that way by the time they get to May, they'll kind of know what they're doing. So those are the pros. The cons, and I'll be very honest about this. It's annoying to me personally because I'm going to have to wait now more months, and I am in direct contact with people 
who have read the scripts and have an intimate knowledge of what things look like. You know, um, our friend uh, John Van Sitters, who's been on the show twice, uh, has very wisely kept me in the dark because he knows that I'm not going to be able to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> so um, I only knew two factoids about the show, one of which is now public, which was that the lead character is not um, the captain. I knew that a little bit before it became con- uh, common knowledge. There's something else I know, which I'm not allowed to say, and I only know it kind of by accident. I'm not supposed to know. I found, like, somebody told me, and then I asked for them to confirm, and the, I kind of blindsided them, and the way they said I'm not answering led me to believe. It was one of those that's a yes moments when I said, is it true that blah, blah, blah? It was like, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I'm like, that's a yes. Um, but wisely, I don't know anything else, and I don't want to know anything else. I want to be with the fans. I want to know when the fans know, but now it's going to be stretched out all these months more. So it's going to be a little tough. I also liked, and I'm just, you know, to be honest here, some of the cons. It was going to be good to have it a, as a winter show. Now that it's going to be summer, I don't know. I mean, because, you know, who knows what night it's going to be on. I may be out. In the winter, I stay home like a bear. I don't leave the house. Well, or they could put it up against something like Game of Thrones. <laughs> well, that's the other thing I wanted to mention. Exactly. Prior, it seemed perfect. You know, January, it was going to start late January, 13 weeks, probably end just in time for Game of Thrones, kind of hand the baton. Now, if it's starting in late May, Game of Thrones usually starts in April. I think it started later this year. Oh, did it? Yeah, because um, they're filming. The, it, it Because winter winter has come. <laughs> So sure has. So they're fi- they're filming it a little bit later. Uh, to oh, okay. So it's gonna it's gonna be at the same time of Game of Thrones, which is not a, a big deal because I think there's certainly room in the conversation for two big sci-fi fantasy shows. But it means you know Game of Thrones owns Sunday night, absolutely. And Sunday night is the best night of television. Just ask Ed Sullivan; he knew that. <laughs> so um, you know it's a little bit unfortunate because it can't be. I was hoping we would get the Game of Thrones time slot. But it's, um, you know, it doesn't have to be watched live if it's summertime and you're at the pool or you're at the beach house or having romantic interludes out in the woods somewhere, as one does in summertime. You know, the show will be there for you on CBS All Access the next day. But it is nice to watch things live. And they plan to do it, even though it's on the streaming platform, it's still going to be a week-to-week show. We don't know the date. Let's say Sunday's at 9. Game of Thrones is Sunday's at 10, right? Uh, No, it's 9. Damn, that's the perfect time, Sundays and That nine. is the time slot, the prime time slot. I guess it could be after. Well, it'll be whatever whatever it is, it's going to rule. It's just, um, so that is the cons. But let's, let's now um, add up the pros and the cons. The pros still win, as far as I'm concerned. And um, it's a little bit annoying because I'm going to have to not bombard my friends and ask what they know. And, you know, the summertime isn't as, as great as winter. But, you know, they're doing the show right and they're letting... Uh, Brian Fuller and his team take their time, and they're letting the good wife <laughs> take all the snags. So I think ultimately it's good news. I think it's good news. And it's good news for this show because it gives us a little more time to um, uh, get to know the people involved in the production. They're having a slower production process. Maybe we'll get to have them on the show more. I have never met Brian Fuller, but I know that he is aware of the show's existence. <laughs> I don't know that he listens, but he is. I have been told from those who didn't know that he knows we're out there, and uh, it stands to reason that he will uh, be involved. And, and at the recent convention in, in New York, uh, at Mission New York, I did a panel with Nick Meyer and, more importantly, with Kirsten Beyer. And Kirsten 
is from what I've gleaned, she's a very she's not just another writer on the show. She is uh, very high on the totem pole day to day in the writers' room and works very closely with Brian. She was brought in by Brian specifically, not one of the other producers, not by CBS, not by Alex Kurtzman's company. And she, of course, is the woman who writes currently uh, the Voyager uh, relaunch novels. She's written like six of them, and they still will continue to do so, and has also been named by uh, all of the various CBS entities that work uh, with the Star Trek brand. She is overseeing, we, we talked about this in New York, and I can't remember if we mentioned this on the show last week or not, but she is the liaison between the new show and the various fiction uh, ancillary products. So she is working on the prequel novel. She's not writing it, but she's the liaison between David Mack, the novelist who's written some of the best Star Trek novels ever, and she's working with Mike Johnson, the car, uh, comic book writer who's kind of the king of Star Trek comics right now, and IDW Comics. She's. We gave her a fun name in New York. We said that she was the ambassador of intertextual communication. <laughs> and I bring this up because Kirsten, uh, Kirsten and I are BFF now. We're very close. She's very familiar with the show. And um, she very foolishly gave me her contact information. So we will be involved with her. And as the show continues, you know, Brian's going to be a busy guy. When, he's, when the writing's done, he's, he's on set. He's making sure everybody's... Oh, the sets look good, and he's in the edit bays, and he's making sure the special effects look good. He's putting the music, you know, he's doing everything. Kirsten and her team, they write the stuff, and they ship it off, you know, and then they, uh, I'm not saying she's sitting there twiddling her thumbs, but she <laughs> may have a little bit more time to talk to the fans. So uh, you can expect that Kirsten will be involved in this show as we get closer. So that's the good news. Um, okay, so we talked about the date change. Now, the other thing that happened since last week, Last week, we ran the episode of the live podcast we did in New York, which uh, was very fun. Armin Shimmerman and Ethan Phillips were on, and Ethan was about to tell a joke. You were there, Brian. Oh, right? yes, I remember. By the way, what did you do after the, because um, I had somewhere to be, and so, and you and the rest of the team here were like there, and I'm like, guys, I got to run. I'll catch you later, and then I didn't see you for the rest of the day. Did uh, you hang out? We walked around uh, for, for a while. Uh, I tried the VR Demo. Oh yeah, that's was fun. Yeah. So much fun. Yeah, bridge command, bridge, right? bridge uh, crew, bridge crew, bridge crew. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I was that a lot too. of fun. Um, it, it it ran so much smoother than I expected it to as well. Like, I was a little iffy on the whole VR yeah. type thing. Yeah. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun. Um, the two people I did it with were not as good as I was, but <laughs> <laughs> I was terrible. When but I did um, it. but we 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 saved everybody and and mission accomplished. Yeah, no, it's this new VR game that's coming out in late October, early November, called Bridge Crew, and it it's, it showed at E three and various other uh, uh, gaming events, and they had it at Mission New York over Labor Day weekend, and uh, you know you strap on the helmet and um, it's a. It's a game that you can play. You have to play with others. Yes. So the idea is if you're home alone and you're using the PS4 network or whatever it's called, PlayStation, or whatever, PlayStation, PlayStation Network, PlayStation Network, and you got your buddy in California, you can beam to him and you can do it together. Um, or if you're all in the same room, you can do it too. And one person's the captain, one person's the engineer, one person's the navigator, one person's the helmsman, and you got to rescue people and fire at Klingons and do all these things. Which one did you do? I drove the ship. Okay, I, I was tactical. So, so you I, were firing. I was firing the yeah, lasers. No, yeah, no, I was the helmsman, uh, helms person. 
and I give myself a B minus. I, I wasn't too good at it, but I did. G- we we survived. Um, I uh, you know you got to go to warp and you got to like coil up the you know the warp you know you got to power it up and zoom away and it's really cool. You use your hands and um, I, went, I was doing it with a friend of mine. He wasn't watching. He wasn't doing it. He was just kind of standing around watching me. And he says that like uh, he just had a, a baby, and he said that. Uh, Everybody's kind of like staring at their hands while they're in the put the helmet on. Yeah, and he said everybody looks like my baby because they're all just like, <laughs> just like stick. Because you're supposed to like put your hand. Yeah, you put your hands through like a. It's not like a joystick. It's like a. It, yeah, it, it's like it's like a like a PlayStation controller split in half, and there's these like yeah. round things around your fingers, sort it's of. Kind of like a Wiimote, but like yes. a fist, a Wiimote yep. fist or something, a glove. something like that. Yeah. Anyway, it's a lot of fun, and um, the game is coming to market soon, and before the Star Wars game, so screw you, Star Wars, <laughs> we win. Anyway, so you did that, and you, did you go to other panels, or just kind of walked around? And- uh, we walked around for a while, and then we got we got some lunch, and then I, I, th- I think we, we we did leave a little early. So. All right. That's okay. Yeah, you did. You were there to make sure that- the- I have been fighting off sickness for since oh. then. Just oh. <laughs> back and forth between no, my family and I. It's because you just- had lunch at the Jacob Javits <laughs> Center. That place is a hole. It's disgusting. It's, it's, it's really gross. All right. Well, the point I'm making is that Ethan Phillips told a, was about to tell a joke. Armin Shimmerman, who, who was very good friends with Ethan Phillips, and I, I guess I didn't really realize that until they were on stage together. They've known each other for decades. Um, you know, they, they haven't. They weren't on the same show, but still, they, they're New York actors. They've known each other forever, and they're very funny. And they, they probably were up for the same roles a lot over the years because they're kind of similar in stature and they're very funny. And uh, anyway. Um, Armin says, Ethan said something very funny, as he always does. He's got a very specific delivery. Um, ah, you know, ah, ah. <laughs> and Armin goes, I tell you, Ethan is hilarious. Uh, you give him any topic and he can um, make a joke at it. So I said, oh, yeah, tough guy. Um, this was the day before Labor Day. I'm like, all right, Ethan, give me a Labor Day joke. And he's about, he goes, okay, um, okay, well, and he's like, oh, I can't say that. I'm like, There's only, there was only one kid in the audience it wasn't a it was a packed room but it was not filled to the rafters and there was one kid and she wasn't you know eight she was 14 or whatever and she was with her parents so i looked at the parents i'm like do you consent to let them hear this joke and they're like sure 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 i'm like okay well the parents say it's okay and he's like what it's like i can't say it i can't say it so we left it and then later i asked him i said what was your labor day joke and he told me and then on the show uh, last week, I said uh, something in, in the talk of, I said, if 100 people tweet uh, the EngagePod hashtag, I would tell the joke. Well, 100 people didn't tweet the hashtag. Oh. Like 12 did. <laughs> but I'll tell you the joke anyhow. <laughs> it, it, and I'm going to make it so it's um, not uh, R-rated. I'll make it so it's very hard PG-13 rated. Now, again, I'm not, I can't tell a joke as good as Ethan Phillips can. But a lot of people who really wanted to hear it were pestering me over Twitter, like, come on, come on, you got to tell us, not fair, it's not fair. What do you mean, not fair? How much do you pay to listen to this podcast? So give me a break. But I will now do my best to tell the joke like him, okay? Now, I'm going to, you know, you know, I'm not going to tell it like him, because I can't do his style. <laughs> well, that's like multitasking. Right, I'm going to tell it like me, all right? Because if I tell it like him, I'm going to fail. So hold on, I'm take a sip now. Okay, I've never told this, so let me just think I got it right. Okay. Uh, well, it's a Labor Day joke, right? So it's about a guy who doesn't want to go to work. Uh, this guy calls into the office. He calls, calls his boss. He says, I, uh, listen, I, I can't come in today. I'm, I'm sick. 
And the boss says, what do, what do you mean you're sick? Do, do you have a fever? Do you have the flu? He's like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm sick. I can't come in. Well, how sick are you? Are you contagious? I'm telling you, I'm very, very sick. Was well, like, I mean, do we need to worry? Do you have a? Do you at least have a doctor's note? Can you tell me what's wrong? Why are you so sick? He goes, I'm at home screwing my own mother. Is that sick enough for you? <laughs> I, I I think it's better that we didn't. Yeah, yeah. Do that live. <laughs> <laughs> and needless to say, he didn't say screwing. <laughs> and the way Ethan Phillips tells it is a lot better than the way I tell it. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> with that, in a little bit, we're going to pipe in with our guest this week, who is not a Star Trek. Um, you know, we've only had as guests either fellow critics and fans. This guy is a Star Trek fan, by the way, he, which I just found out yesterday through email. Um, but the other people we've had that have no particular connection to Star Trek was Dr. Greer, the guy who was inventing... Who invented the um, tractor beam? The tractor beam. <laughs> who I've been emailing, by the way. He's a lot of fun. And then we had Weird Al Yankovic months ago, which has no connection to anything. Um, but so this is someone who uh, is similar in that they have no specific connection to Star Trek, but I think is an incredibly talented person and has made a film that I think will appeal to Star Trek fans, and it's an independent movie called Operation Avalanche that is out now in what they call select cities. So it's playing in New York and Los Angeles now as we record this. When this goes live this coming Friday, um, it will be expanding to other cities. So, you know, bigger markets, Dallas, San Francisco, Chicago. And then a week after that, it'll be expanding to even more you know, this is called platform release, as they say in the movie biz. So if it's not in your hometown theater this week, check, because Operation Avalanche will be coming, or ought to be coming, to a theater near you over the next few weeks. I mean, eventually, weeks from now, it'll play in Wichita. You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to expand. But if it doesn't come at all, have no fear, because it will eventually live on VOD like everything else. So whether you use Amazon or iTunes or one of the others, Operation Avalanche is a low-budget independent film and um, it is a found footage film. And I'll give you the, the premise right now. I saw it at Sundance earlier this year. And um, it, is, uh, it starts off, it looks like grainy 16-millimeter film. It's actually not 16-millimeter. They just used the lenses to make it look that way, which I want to talk to him about. But basically, it's set in the mid-1960s when the CIA recruited what they call the young, what do they call them? The young minds, the young sharp things, the young young sharp minds, um, which is true. They got these kids right out of Princeton, Harvard, Yale, and said, "We want you guys and uh, to do whatever the heck we're doing in the CIA." And this team, our lead characters, run what is basically the AV club at the CIA. They are film snobs, and they have all the cool editing equipment, state of the art cameras for 1966, whatever, and uh, there's a rumor that there is a Russian-Soviet mole at NASA. So they go to NASA pretending to be a document, without telling NASA they're in the CIA, pretending to be a documentary film team to make a film about the Apollo 11 moon landing, which is coming up. They're working on Apollo. And what happens is, about 22 minutes into the movie, which is if you read a screenwriting book, when the big reveal is supposed to happen for the second act, um, 
they uncover something. They don't uncover the Russian mole. They they eavesdrop in a conversation that uh, NASA can't get a guy back from the moon. They can land a guy on the moon. They can do 90% of the Apollo mission. They can get into orbit. They can send the lunar module down. They can't figure out the last step. They don't have the jet fuel. They don't have whatever they need to get it back. They can't connect Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong back to Michael Collins and zip them back. And so our two doofuses are the only people who know this, and they concoct a scheme to basically fake the moon landing. So what this is, is uh-huh. this is the found footage movie of the fake moon landing, <laughs> which you would think would be anathema to Star Trek fans because we love the moon landing. We love NASA. We love science fiction. But yet the movie is so cool and it's done in such a neat tinkerer's MacGyver way with such love of um, such a love for the time period. Uh, the way everything is recreated is so cool. And there's a twist in there. There's a whole section in the middle where they have to consult with Stanley Kubrick, who's making 2001 A Space Odyssey at the time, and they have to infiltrate Shepperton Studio in London to get ideas from Stanley Kubrick. And of course, they have to do it the same way they did it with NASA. They have to sneak their way in. So this is why Operation Avalanche is one of my favorite movies of the year. And we're going to talk to Matt Johnson, who is the co-writer He's the director, co-writer, and also the star. He plays Matt Johnson. In Matt Johnson's previous movie called The Dirties, which was a found footage movie about a little darker subject matter, about a school shooting, uh, he also played the character Matt Johnson. So the guy likes to uh, he likes to play with himself, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so um, that's what's going on with Operation Avalanche. It's a really neat uh, film. And in just a moment, we're going to get him on the phone and take it from there. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to Engage, the official Star Trek podcast with your host, Jordan Hoffman. You are, after all, irrational. Okay, folks, so we're back, and we are going to, um, oh, uh, what's that, Captain Picard? Open a hailing frequency. Yes, we're going to open a hailing frequency to all the way in San Francisco, California, to one of my favorite young filmmakers. I don't know how young he is. This guy is mercurial and lots of mystery. Matt Johnson is on the line. Hello, Matt Johnson. Hey, how you doing? May I, may I ask yeah. how, how old you are? Because you seem like a, young, a youngster, but, but, but who knows? You're a man of mystery. No one knows. Well, you know what? Some people have figured it out. The Canadian press has, has, has printed my age many times as 30 or 31. Okay. Because in your last movie, you passed as a high school kid, and that wasn't that long ago. That's right. Yeah, we shot that movie probably four years ago. And, uh, and, and, and not only did I pass as a high school student, we snuck into high schools to shoot the movie. <laughs> so, I, so people really believed I was a high school student. Awesome. Well, I did a little bit of talk up about what Operation Avalanche is, so the listeners that haven't seen it and don't follow film festival news are now up to speed and uh one of the questions you mentioned snuck into uh high schools to shoot the dirties the the rumor going around is that you kind of hoodwink nasa a little bit to make this movie now when i talk to you i never can tell what's real and what's what's a cover story because that's part of what makes your work so wonderful 
But what is the deal? You you snuck into and much like the characters in your film, which have the same names as you and your partners, to make it even more crazy. You actually kind of snuck into NASA to shoot some footage. Is that correct? Yeah, and I wouldn't lie to you. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we it was, it was it, we did it not because of uh, I think sometimes we're accused of doing it just for the thrill. Quite the opposite. We did it because we didn't have any money and we wanted to shoot a movie about faking the moon landing at NASA. And we're not like Ron Howard. We couldn't just rebuild it like he did in Apollo 13. So we did. I mean, I, I was a film student at the time, and we asked them if we could come shoot some scenes for a documentary we were making about the Apollo program, and they said yes. And we stayed for five days and we shot most of what. You you see in Operation Avalanche. Wait, so have you been sitting on this footage for a really long time? Yeah. No, 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 no. It was one of the first things we shot. We shot oh, in okay. 14. I, I, this, this movie, Operation Avalanche, is my master's thesis. Like, it, that's, <laughs> like, like I'm, I, I, w- I was in film school until about uh, four months ago. You can't get college credit for making a movie that's in theaters. It doesn't work like that, does it? Yeah, in Canada, you can. Oh, typical, typical Canada. Well, um, now the other thing is, listen, ev- I want to make your, your allegiances plain. People who listen to this show and people who love Star Trek love NASA and the moon landing. And your film is tongue-in-cheek, but it, it's, it's also played very straight. Uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to dig yourself out of a hole here. You don't actually think the moon landing was fake, do you? No, and I don't think anybody who watches this movie and is even slightly reasonable would think that, that I do. Um, uh, it's, it's quite obviously just a, like an amazing place to tell a story. I think w- what's obvious to me is that if we really did believe the moon landing was faked, this would be a very different film. It would be a much more didactic, like, you must believe this. It would almost be like an instructional video, mm. whereas what we've made is, you know, a comedy thriller about, uh, about the CIA faking the moon landing. And although we spend so much time and energy trying to get the details right, that speaks more to our own inner love of NASA and the moon program than it does to our desire to uh, debunk it. Right. Well, that's the vibe that I got, is that when I started watching, when I saw the film... It's clear that you guys have a love for 60s space race and that time period and also all the technology of how how films were made at the time and how you know the all the all the tech of the era the retro tech from you know the the uh, the editing equipment in the film labs to also like the telemetry machines at NASA and yeah, we're, um, we're obsessed with it so was there are scenes where you're at mission control did you recreate that or, or is that the old mission control that's just sort of a part of a museum now no dude that is full on the galveston campus of nasa and i can't tell you what it was like when we got there first of all when we went to nasa we had no idea what we were going able to we were going to be allowed to do and it was like christmas when we got there <laughs> and they said oh yeah you can do whatever you want you can film wherever you want and so we went, well, is Mission Control still here? And they said, oh, yeah, not only is it still here, we haven't touched it since, like, 1974. Oh, my God. It hadn't touched anything. It's all <laughs> exactly the same. Most of the stuff still works. So the, the, glee in your, the glee in your eyes and the glee in your comrades' eyes when you're there, that's legit. I mean, that oh, it's is... one-to-one. It's, that is me for the first time seeing Mission Control for real. And then being able to go in it to be able to open up the computers, reach around, like put little recording devices inside. Like, we were doing all that stuff for real. And I got to tell you, like, that... Not only was that like a, a lifelong dream come true to be able to actually touch and feel that stuff, but to be able to do it 
inside of a movie like that it was crazy it, it was one of the one of the few times in my life it happened once on the dirties too where you felt like you were in the movie like you were living the movie and when it was done it, it like just i can't tell you the joy we had getting across the border with that footage <laughs> we it's one of those feelings Back where you're like no, there's no way we're going to get away with this they're going to stop us they're going to steal the footage like we just we couldn't believe that we were able to escape with that footage it now ha- has there been a little bit of blowback from nasa because the movie i mean i get it the movie is in a way a celebration of nasa because it's about problem solving the way i put it uh in the review i wrote for the guardian was it's like the scene in apollo 13 where he says we have to figure out how to put this put thing round, peg into a square hole right Right, right. It's like that's the whole movie. It's your character figuring out how to fake the moon landing with just like duct tape. Exactly. Exactly. But it still does not, you know, NASA's PR machine may not be too cool with the film. Have you gotten any blowback from. from We have, and I got to tell you, on the surface, NASA hates it. NASA does not want to have any. If if we had gone to them and said, hey, we want to make a fake documentary about faking the moon landing, will you help? They would have given a resounding no. They would have said, no, get the hell out of here. We don't want to have anything to do with it. And right now, just in Wired, actually, Wired was able to finally get a response from them because we've been inviting them to screenings. We've been inviting the people that were in the movie to South by Southwest to see the movie. Um, and we got no response. But finally, Wired ran a piece about the film. And, and they gave an official comment, NASA did, saying that they were disappointed and that they, they didn't like the idea of the movie. But they haven't seen it. And I'm telling you that especially the individuals who are in the movie and the individuals who worked with us to get this movie made from NASA, when they see it, I think they're going to be thrilled. Because what are we doing? We're showing NASA in all its glory in the 1960s in a way that they probably didn't even think was possible. Yeah. So... So I certainly... But then you also show them in cahoots with the CIA murdering civilians at the end, but that's... uh... Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) But isn't that fun? You get to see your life in a movie? I think think that, uh, unfortunately, yes, this movie is going to stoke the flames of conspiracy theorists who really are a bit of a thorn in NASA's side, but i got to say, get real. Nobody is taking those conspiracies seriously. No, no. Um, apart from a few minions that Donald Trump seems to be engaging on a daily basis. <laughs> like, that, that movement is essentially dead, and that's one of the reasons why this movie seemed like such a great idea, because it's one of those stories that everybody knows, but nobody takes seriously, and we thought, let's challenge ourselves and really make it seem real. Yeah. Well, we I mean, the, the really joke... make it seem real. The joke, that, when, when I saw it at Sundance, every, every critic said the same thing, is like, if Matt Johnson ever runs into Buzz Aldrin, Buzz Aldrin's going to beat the shit out of him. Yeah. Because Buzz Aldrin was harassed, and it's on YouTube. I'm sure you've seen the video. I've seen it many times, yeah. (laughs) You've seen it and worried about yourself. He has, and I think rightfully so, decked some clown who was bothering him about it being a hoax. So, um, you know, I mean, get, you know, wear a mouth guard if you ever should be around him, but... Actually, you know what? I have a response to that, and that's that I actually think even Buzz Aldrin would like this movie. And and for reasons that, that... are not obvious. I think that video, which I've seen many times of him getting punched, has much more to do with his own civic pride and being called a liar and really being, I would say, unfairly harassed by this absolute ass of mm. a guy. Um, I think that, um, that, that Buzz and I would actually be able to talk about this kind of stuff, and as soon as he knew my perspective, he'd be like, oh, cool, I'm happy you put me in the movie. <laughs> I mean, that may be wishful thinking, but... Uh, but uh, well, 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 we won't know until it happens, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one of the other nifty things about it, and which I think most Trek fans who loved sci-fi from the uh, original series and, and the 60s, um, is the uh, zeal that your new movie has for the work of Stanley Kubrick. And in fact, Stanley Kubrick 
makes an appearance in the film. It's not just Neil and Buzz. Um, you somehow get Stanley Kubrick in the movie um, in two different ways. One, and I wanted to ask you if it's true, your characters, when they're first at the CIA, are working on a project, and it's it's mentioned very briefly, uh, investigating Stanley Kubrick in general. Was that something that you made up, or was that a no, real thing? completely true. In fact, that was one of the first... One of the first payoff moments in the in the scripting of this movie, we went, oh my God, there's something here. Oh my God, this story's coming together. Was when we were doing our research on the CIA, and we we gave it a fake name, Operation Deep Red, which is an Argento reference, but um, but a completely real mission, completely real investigation, and it wasn't. It, it was it was the FBI more than it was the CIA, but um, but totally investigating Stanley Kubrick. For reasons that nowadays seem laughable, it's because some congressman saw Dr. Strangelove and thought, wait a minute, how does Stanley Kubrick have one-to-one perfect designs of B-52 bombers in his movie? This, he, somebody must have given him secrets. I want him investigated. And so they did. Oh, wow. And so, and so that was a completely real investigation. And if you look closely at that opening of the movie, we actually recreate the investigation almost exactly the same way that, uh, that the agency did. Wow. Okay, so that was a real thing, and it leads you to when your characters uncover the the the, the fact that NASA can get get our get our boys to the moon, but they just can't get them back. There's the lunar module issue, um, you know, uh, and you're figuring out how to fake it on film. Uh, you realize that. Else, that over in England they're shooting 2001: A Space Odyssey, which is yeah, he's making his own movie uh, <laughs> in uh, in Shepperton Studios. Yeah, which, I think. Oh, which, oh yeah, we'll go steal it. Which had NASA consultants on it. Two, two of them, actually, two really smart guys who uh, who Stanley Kubrick hired specifically to get the moon stuff right. Which is why it's such a coup for Matt, where he's like, "Wait a minute, we can get NASA to help us fake the moon landing without them even knowing that they're helping us." <laughs> Because, of course, he couldn't include NASA staff because he doesn't want anybody to know about the conspiracy. <laughs> so um, this had to be a trip for you because in your movie you recreate the set of 2001, which is almost to a cinephile. It's almost as holy as walking on the moon itself. And you shoot it in a really innovative way because your character has to sneak has to sneak a camera in through a, a bag with a hole in it. And then you don't realize where you are. But then it's like, oh, my God, they're on the scene on the moon, where Dr. Floyd and the gang, after they had their ham sandwiches, um, <laughs> are with the monolith. So, first of all, legally, how you allow, how did you, how did you get to show the monolith in your movie? How did Lionsgate's uh, lawyers let that happen? Well, they were our lawyers before they were Lionsgate's okay. lawyers. So let me make that very clear. And I'll tell you, that was day one. We knew we needed to work with smart lawyers. Have you seen the film Escape from Tomorrow? Whoa, oh, we just broke through. Say it again, Matt. Uh, have, you, have you seen the film Escape from Tomorrow? Oh, the Epcot movie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, very few people have seen the movie, but I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so now that, now that, that, I was on tour with those filmmakers going to many of the same film festivals with the Dirties, and I asked them legally how they were able to pull that off, and they told me about their lawyer, Chris Perez, who we instantly hired and consulted on every single point for this movie, from the NASA footage to Walter Cronkite to filming at NASA to filming at Shepperton to using all the old Kubrick family stuff. He gave us solid, like, fair use cases to use all of that stuff, so long as we played by his rules. And, uh, and I mean, it's very, very new. Like, nobody had ever done that kind of stuff before. But that's how we did it. We, right. we started with the law and okay. worked, worked ahead. So, so you were able to argue that this, it's a half-obscured vision of the monolith from an angle. It's not, like the, it's not recreating the shot. 
it's Actually, like, no. No, that, that had nothing to do with it. All it needed to do was serve our story. And if that footage served our story in a way that no, we couldn't use any other footage to make the same point that that footage would, then we had legal grounds to use it under fair use. It didn't need to be obscured. It didn't, like, all those things we do to kind of play with the moon landing, right. like, like how, how to create a fake image. But in terms of what we could show, we could be very explicit. Wow. So you, yeah. you, you wait, was that actual behind-the-scenes footage of 2001, or did you guys shoot that? Dude, there is no behind-the-scenes Right, footage. no, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Kubrick was, no, I shouldn't say he was crazy, he was pretty smart. He didn't let anybody back there, except, except that, weren't, or that weren't in the crew or weren't working for NASA. And nobody was allowed to shoot film back there, except for the stuff that he was shooting. And right afterwards, he burned all the sets, so yeah. that nobody would knew how he did it. But... And so we kept hounding the Kubrick estate, the Kubrick family, saying, please, please, just give us, like, like low-res versions of anything. And they kept saying, no way, we'll never give you anything. And then our VFX supervisor, when, it was, when we were about to give up, said, you know what? There are high-res photographs from the set of 2001 that have just been released. Why don't I try to take those and build them into 3D space digitally? And then we can just put you in them. And he did the same for the characters, for Stanley Kubrick. Like that Stanley Kubrick that I'm talking with, and he talks with me, right. that, is, that is just built from a photograph of Stanley Kubrick that was then animated to a human being. <laughs> oh, man. I don't want to run on the wrong side of you. You're going to take whatever's in my life and put it into your next movie. So. Uh. <laughs> Well, it's pretty it's pretty cool stuff. And anybody who's a film geek obviously is going to go bananas for this. By the way, the movie you mentioned a moment ago, Escape from Tomorrow, just if people are curious, these filmmakers, uh, what they did was they bought season passes to Disney World and they used SLR cameras that look like regular still cameras and they shot a movie at Disney World using Disney World as their backdrop. And they never say Disney World, they never say Epcot, but it's clearly there. But they did it in black and white and they made it very surreal it's and a horror movie. It's a, <laughs> it's a horror movie where, like, they go in the Epcot sphere and it's like a chamber of horrors in there and whatnot. And you, the first thing is like, how could you do this? But it's like, no, like you, could, like you and I can go to Epcot tomorrow and take all the pictures we want of our niece and nephew running around and make them do little skits. So why can't you just act a movie out? And if nobody cares, who's going to know? So that's <laughs> that's. Uh, that's what's going on, and those are your buddies, so God knows well, what you're we owe those guys a lot. We owe them a lot. Um, now, the movie is also, uh, there's a lot of cool music in there, too. You use the Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, you use Sketches of Spain uh, from Miles Davis, and you use the music from Dr. Strangelove at some point also. Quite a bit, yeah. So I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, at, how, at what point do you want to make it seem like actual found footage and at what point do you say look our audience knows this is a gag we, we can play around with sort of like formal aspects and make this a more watchable film where is the where's the line for you well i i think what we like to think is of matt the character trying to put this movie together and and making it watchable so yeah what you're talking about is a real challenge like how do you put like a hollywood style story inside of a documentary space and still have it be credible we're always walking that line, and it's really challenging. I think we're still sort of learning what you can and can't do. But, um, but in the end, it, we, we just try to keep it moving and exciting and, and follow the mindset of Matt, the character. And if Matt would want this music to be playing here or would be feeling this vibe, then we use it. Yeah. And that's sort of the rule that we play by. And Matt, Matt isn't a bad guy. He, he just is ambitious, but he's very young. And young people, can, when they don't have anybody checking on them, 
can frequently do dumb things. Is that kind of the moral of the story here? Or? Well, it's about ends justify the means thinking, that's for sure. I mean, and, that, and that's exactly what, what Matt exhibits. I mean, he, he, he thinks that he will be forgiven so long as everything works out. Tell me a little bit about front screen projecting, which is what your character steals from Stanley Kubrick, basically. Was that something that he invented, or was it Douglas Trumbull and the other people in VFX on 2001? Had it existed beforehand? Yeah, so front screen projection was not invented by Kubrick, but he definitely perfected it and used it in such a way where... That it, it, I mean, it had never been seen before. I think a lot of people even now, when they watch 2001, don't realize the extent to which that movie used front screen projection, which, I mean, if you, if you don't know what it is, it's basically the concept that the background is projected. So the background is, is a 2D image as opposed to actual stuff. Um, and everything from that opening ape sequence to uh, all the stuff in space, like the, they use so much of it in that movie, and you would never know, because what Kubrick kind of found out that a lot of these other sort of B sci-fi movies didn't was that if you hide the horizon with real with you know rocks or whatever you can like actual big pieces of set then the effect is almost perfect and and of course you put a tool as rudimentary as you know projecting a a 2d backdrop into into a set in the hands of a master a technical master like kubrick and you're going to get incredible results i mean How, how does it how does it differ from a matte painting well, the difference is that you can have, I mean, I mean, a matte painting, anybody can understand. You basically just paint your background, and you can have really, really detailed paintings. But front screen projection, you're, you're shooting, you're, your camera is actually shooting through the exact same plane that the image is being projected on. So you're getting light reflecting, actual light from the, from the background uh, going directly into the camera. Um, you have to, you can't move the camera at all because mm. if you do, then the it's very angular. Like if if uh, I mean this is getting pretty complicated, but there's there's the the screen that is projected on is made of like millions and millions of tiny little reflective beads, and if you move your camera even a bit, then the image goes completely distorted and dark. But if you're at the exact right angle, then you've got light emanating from your backgrounds, which matte paintings can't do. They can only reflect the light right, that you're right. casting on them. Um, so it gives you just incredible, incredible depth. So you, um, you are clearly a guy who is um, who, who admires the old way of doing things. And um, the movie looks like 16 millimeter, but you actually did shoot, which nobody shoots on anymore, but you did shoot on video but just used old lenses? Did I, did I get that right? Well, we did a mix of a lot of things. We shot a lot on black and white 16 millimeter, and we shot some color film, too, on 16. But the real trick, the real thing that we innovated with was shooting a ton of stuff digitally and then with, with very 1950s <laughs> ingenue zoom lenses, which are really old, old, slow, cruddy zoom lenses but look incredible. And then what we did was this incredible process of doing a one-to-one 16 millimeter negative transfer of every single frame of our movie. And we did that with a guy named Pablo Perez in a really small lab in Toronto. And what that wound up doing was all of the, because 4K projection and 4K screens are so advanced, you can get an almost perfect transfer from what you shoot on video to a 16 millimeter neg. And then once you have it on that neg, the world is your oyster. You can do prints on old ectochrome. You can do. You can damage your neg, then print it. You can print right. positives, then interpositive.
like you can do all the stuff that they used to do in labs with, with I mean, with actual 16, and that's how we were able to create a lot of those really weird um, aged film effects. Like we buried the movie just the same way that Matt buries it, and so it has all this degradation from soil erosion. Right. We, we, we got to do all the tricks that the old guys got to do, except with digital footage, which it just opened a whole new world to us. And which, which is something which is, you know, from a from most people's point of view, it's you're going down in, in quality. But for the purpose of this story, you need it to look old and that it's been buried in, in the ground and, and, and dinged up a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we, as soon as we discovered we could do that, we were like, it felt like we'd won the lottery. Well, before we um, set up this this talk, um, because I, like I said, I saw the movie back in January, but it's just now in theaters. It's in select cities now. I think it's in L.A., New York, and then it's going to start platform releasing, you know, other other major cities uh, across North America, and then eventually VOD and whatnot. But I did mention that I thought the movie would be of interest to Star Trek fans, and then I sent a note and I said, "Hey, I don't even know if Matt is a Star Trek fan or not, but if he is." What are some of his favorite episodes? And uh, you sent me some info back, or you, you barked. I don't know what your day was like, but somebody somebody wrote back um, in all caps. Anything holodeck? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and chain of command is actually is actually the big episode. I mean, that's my favorite stuff. I have a really great history with Star Trek, and that's that my best friend growing up needed Star Trek playing in the background to sleep. Really? Like he couldn't fall asleep unless Star Trek was playing. And we had so many sleepovers that I wound up just watching, you know, a thousand hours of Star Trek as a very young guy. <laughs> was this original series or next gen or a mix of almost both? All, almost all next gen, but we watched original series. We watched DS9. We watched Voyager. Like, we watched everything. I mean, I do not hold a candle to this guy. His name's Garrett Van Wootenberg, and he is, he knows everything about Star Trek, and what I know is just from being around him so much. But I mean that literally, even to this day, he cannot sleep Unless Star Trek is playing. Wow. I mean, that's yeah. that's uh, maybe something he needs to look into. But uh, <laughs> No, 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 no. It's, I, I think it's a... Uh, um, it's a, a warm, feature, fuzzy blanket. A feature, not a bug. Yeah. <laughs> so Chain of, Chain of Command is one of the best, for sure. Chain of Command is your favorite episode, bar none. Barnon, I also like any of the episodes with Lore and Nooney and Soon. Like, I love that stuff. I love when Data takes over the Enterprise and, and, and puts on Picard's voice and puts it uh, and, like, completely takes it over. I love that stuff. I, 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 like, I like whenever they use the holodeck because, I mean, as, as is probably pretty obvious, I like when they play formal games in that show. And I think that's one of the reasons that that show is so ahead of its time, is that they would take their characters and put them in, you know, the Wild West or Earth or, like, put them in these situations where it's like, wait a minute. Come on, like they, they're not supposed to be able to do this, but they did. Right, right. I mean, so many of the best episodes, even going back to season one of of original series. Some some think the best episode is um, "City on the Edge of Forever," well, and, and, and myself included. That is, that's by that famous writer, uh, Harlan Ellison. Harlan Ellison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, I that's mean, one of Garrett's faves too. The, I mean, the thing is, you know, we've already established what Kirk and Spock are like. Let's put them somewhere else. Let's make them fish out of water. And so many of the episodes that are resonated in a way follow that model star trek for the voyage home um even mirror mirror and all the mirror universe stuff is you know we know what our kirk and spock are like let's flip them and see and what dude, they're like i gotta tell you that is one of the one, what was so cool for us about doing the dirties and operation avalanches we wanted to take our kirk and spock i mean not to not to draw too clear uh, a comparison and put them in a new world 
and put them in the 1960s fake <laughs> moon landing. I love that stuff. I love it when you have characters that you just know, and then you turn their worlds upside down, and the, and the format still works, and the show still works. Right. I love that stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, I mean, the cat, you're talking about your, your, your kind of uh, second banana as Owen in both films, who yeah. I would imagine has been your friend forever, and he is a, not the third guy is the co-writer. He doesn't write the scripts with you, Owen does, but he's part of your team. It's you and Owen and... Bowles. What is Bowles' real name? John. Josh. Josh. Josh yeah. yeah. And that's your that's that's the Kirk Spock and Bones of your world. So, <laughs> are you working <laughs> yeah. to get? Is your next project with them as well? Or actually, you know what? You're gonna the TV show that we make right now that that you're probably gonna see in Fantastic Fest, which is called Nirvana the Band. The show is you're gonna love because we do so many Star Trek references. We got we we're sh- we, I mean not in the episodes we're we're screening at this festival, but we do like there are four lights. <laughs> we're doing like data impressions. We use like sound effects from the original series all the time. Like we and we're not all su- like super obsessive Star Trek fans, but we do it a lot. We also do a whole episode based on Star Wars on seeing Episode Seven. Um, but uh, so but, the. Yeah, the- yeah, that's what I was leading to. Your new show is called Nirvana the Show, the band. Nirvana the band, the show. Sorry. I don't really know what – I deliberately stayed um, – have not read about it because I'm going to be seeing it soon, and I wanted to go in fresh. So, uh, Tell me what it, you think about the new Star Trek movies because I've seen those, and I've got my opinions on them. What, uh, you, 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 I, love, you, I love the third one. I love the first one, and I love the third one, and the second one I like to say um, uh, was a bit of a misstep. That's my polite way of saying it. Although when I watched it again recently, I didn't dislike it as much as I did the first time because I saw it in an IMAX theater as part of the marathon of the new three, and uh, it definitely has... Um, it's propulsive. You know, The music's good. The editing's good. J.J. Abrams really knows where to put the camera... He also likes to shine lights in it all the time. But I felt that the second one, even though the story didn't quite come together, there's still a lot of cool stuff in it. There's good humor between Spock and Uhura and with Chekhov and whatnot. So I do like the new movies a lot. They're not my... When I think about Star Trek, I don't think about the new movies first. But I do like them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Who's your who's your uh, bridge crew? Who's your ideal bridge crew? Uh, well, it's funny you should say that because next week's episode we we recorded in um, we we were at the convention in New York just over Labor Day and we recorded our interactive panel called One Trek Mind where we put together our favorite bridge crew with the audience. Really, and I agree with a lot of what the bridge crew is that I love. And actually, and I saw because you emailed me what your bridge crew is, and it's very different from mine, although very similar. I um, the first thing is this: I think the best captain is Captain Picard. I really do. I, I wrestle with that. It's just I'm such a Kirk fan. <laughs> Picard obviously is a genius. We're doing an episode of our show. We hope where where we find Captain Picard in a forest and try to get him back to the Enterprise, which I won't spoil <laughs> too much of. But but that's true, and we'll blow people's minds. I like that he's in a forest. I like that he's in a Canadian forest somewhere. He be- he got beamed to the wrong place. Um, well, here's the thing: I think that Captain Picard is the best captain however i also think that spock is essential for your crew if you're putting your dream crew together and i feel like picard and spock is not a good mix terrible match a terrible match it's like having uh chocolate ice cream with chocolate syrup on it you don't need that exactly exactly so you need some balance and i think what you want to do is mix it up and so what i normally say is my favorite captain is actually captain janeway 
with Spock as her second in command. Well, see, that's not a bad combination either. Because Janeway can do anything. She did, you know. I like they, when she blew up the ship to, to try to do, uh, to try to stop. I forget who who's who, were they Cardassians? Uh, well, um, the, Cardassian. Might have been uh, species A four seven two or the Borg. Or the thing about the thing about Janeway is this: much like Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did backwards and in heels. Uh, Captain Janeway did everything the other captains did, but 70 million zillion parsecs away, 70 light years away, um, with no interaction from Starfleet. She was her own person, and she had to get two crews that hated each other, the Maquis and the Federation crew, to work together. So that's serious business. She is a great leader of people. So yeah, she is. But, but she also had an amazing team. In fact, my, my ideal bridge crew uses a couple of Voyager people. Um, like I, 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 I like the doctor quite a bit. I like... Um, I'm actually trying to. I'm actually forgetting who who I had in the list that I sent you. Well, but, you uh, had Kirk as your as your captain. Of course, and no, you, I know that. You had. Kirk, I'm, I love Kirk to death. But you swapped data out data in for Spock. Yeah, of course I did because I actually think Kirk and Data would be an incredible team, an incredible team. I mean, I, lo- I love Kirk and Spock, and obviously I'm a huge Nimoy fan. But just to see those guys working together, I think would be unbelievable. I think it would be interesting. I think you're right. I think it would be good. Because um, Kirk could really, he wouldn't get the back, well, I don't know, he wouldn't get the back talk he got from Spock, you know? He would, he would just, uh, data's all business when you want him to be, you know? He gets enough back talk from Bones. I mean, he, he, <laughs> like, the, the, the three of them together, I think they'll be an incredible away team. Their, their fighting potential would go way up, like, just in terms of straight strength. Um, data is the strongest of any of the, because he's, a, you know, his... his uh, <laughs> Android work. Yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah he, you can't you can't stop him. I think um, he could beat up Worf in a um, in a fight, and I think he could also beat up Seven of Nine in a fight. That's what we. I don't know about Seven of Nine, but I think it would be close. But but Data to me, what's so funny is that so many of those original series episodes were were lost and won on physical strength. They'd be on a planet and they'd get literally in a fist fight with a bunch of aliens. And having Data back then, you'd destroy. Yeah, he could, he, could, he could beat up everybody, and then they could be like, all right, let's keep moving. And, and it could also that, work that? at very fast speeds. You know, like, for example, Kirk is trying to build the cannon to, to blow up the Gorn. Data would have figured it out much faster than Kirk ever did, and he would have just been like, boop, 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 putting the stones in there, and then boom, you know? Or there's that great episode where um, they've got the machine that calculates the casualties of war. Um, <laughs> yes, you're speaking of uh, Taste of Armageddon. Yeah, Taste of Armageddon. And, I mean, that's the kind of thing where Data immediately could have just been like, uh, no, I mean, this doesn't work because of this and this and this and this. <laughs> like, you, you, you just got a walking computer. I love Data. I love Data. <laughs> and you love Seven of Nine also. Yeah, I think Seven of Nine is, is it replaces Worf. I think she's the... Um, more or less the best ally you can have because yeah. all the real fights are with the Borg anyway. And so if that's your real threat, more so than any of the other um, hostile races, you might as well have a Borg with you. It just, it just makes so much sense. You know, I think from a, from a when talking about Seven of Nine to non-fans uh, or just like casual fans, I think that the character of Seven of Nine is sometimes undervalued by the beauty and statuesque presence of Jerry Ryan. I couldn't agree more. And you know what? I, as a kid, I never even thought, oh, yeah, this is a beautiful woman. I thought it was amazing they had a Borg on the ship. Right. Well, you, you, you were a younger lad than I was when you were watching, because I was yeah, right I at so, the right yeah. age for that. Yeah. But um, <laughs> because to people who don't know it, they're like, oh, they, it's a 
you know, uh, she's like a, a Greek goddess in a tight silver suit. And of course, there is a story reason. You know, her Borg nanoprobes need to synthesize with her skin, and the doctor creates the suit and whatnot. It's totally legit. But for people who aren't fans, it's like, oh, give me a break. It's, it's you know, why do you have that character on there? A super babe, yeah, exactly. She's a super babe. But, and she is, and let's not deny that. It does add a, a visual element to it. And, you know, hey, Riker's a handsome guy, too, for, you know, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Yeah. But um, but the character is awesome, and so when sometimes when dudes talk about how they love Seven of Nine, you get like a raised eyebrow from some people. Like, oh yeah, sure, you love Seven of Nine because she's so smart. I'm like, I, I do love her because she's so smart, and she's very yeah, funny. No, she's also, incredible. She's incredible. And in fact, as I say, I had no, I had no attraction to her <laughs> as, a, as a young person. In fact, I, pref- I, if I'm being sincere, I probably like Dax more. Like, in terms of, oh yeah, that I, I think that girl's cute. Like, um. Yeah, well, there were a lot of attractive people. That's the future. We all have that to look forward to. Is we're all going to look great in those outfits, you know? Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> so where are you on the movies? You like the new movies? or I actually, so I hated the second one so much that I walked out. Oh. Um, like, I really, really hated it. Um, and I thought the first one was okay. I was happy that they were doing it, and I liked, as you said, I liked that it kept moving. But the third one I saw by myself in theaters, and I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah. Like, I, I had a blast. So I kind of fall in the same same space as you. I don't think I like the first one as much, but but that's because like I really want to see Star Trek done. Garrett Van Wootenberg has a great way of talking about uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and just Star Trek in general that I really, really like and it's that where else are you seeing stories where the third act, where the big action act is taking place in a boardroom and people are just talking <laughs> to one another? Like, where else are you seeing that? And I want to see a Star Trek movie do that again. How wicked would it be to have a, like a, I mean, Chain of Command was basically a feature-length film. Yeah. To have a, one of these movies resolve like that, it would be incredible. And Star Trek used to do that, and I know now there's a whole lot of, you know, Hollywood and market pressure right. for them to end with these massive world-destroying action sequences. But it would just be so incredible to see it return to that really, really simple, smart people figuring out an impossible problem and the thrill of that as opposed to, you know, the very easy thrill of ships flying quickly right, and right. destroying a bunch of stuff, which really the old series did not have. No, the no, no. The, I mean, the, standoffs. the scene in Star Trek Beyond where they play the Beastie Boys, which I love because it's hilarious and it's very well done. And it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, but it's very different from what, you know, from what we were talking about. The big ending of The Taste of Armageddon where they blow up the computers is not like that you know? it's <laughs> yeah, very no very different yeah no kidding um it's very very different but you know the new show is coming up next year it's now going to be out in in may it was originally uh, january they just announced they delayed it a little bit because they want to make sure it's done right and uh you know the 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 hope is that we're gonna get what i th- and i think i think they will they've hired all the right people for the new show so my, my optimism is up there for the new show so um you are still uh, in production, or you're still cutting uh, your new show for Canadian television. But for those of us in nor in no, in... it's actually an American show. Believe it or not, we're we're making it for America. Oh, um, what? So uh, what channel will it be on? What? The, it'll does... be on Viceland, um, which is uh, which it took over A and E or A and E two here in the states. Okay, yeah. Um, and you'll be able to see it in January. And um, and not only are we still in production, we're going to be. Uh, we're going to uh, 
be shooting for the next year because they bought three seasons of it. So we're Whoa. making a lot of this show. And drinks yeah, are on I, you. Three seasons at once. That's not. That's not too shabby. Yeah, yeah, and I hope I hope we get to do more, um, just because this show's such a treat. It's basically Operation Avalanche, except with modern references, so we can do stuff about Star Trek and not worry about how it fits into the greater historical narrative. It's uh, it's really uh, like a nerd's paradise for okay. someone like. And me. It, it originated on as a web series, correct? Yeah, it did back in two thousand six. Okay, okay. So um, the Dirties is out there for people who want to see it on uh, iTunes or or something like that. Uh, Operation Avalanche in theaters, and then this coming January, unless you're hitting the film festivals uh, this fall, is the new project. And then after that, we'll see. That's enough for now. That keeps you busy. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you in San Francisco right now? You're doing promotion we're for the film? We're opening the movie here. Uh, San Francisco, we're doing a screening tonight, and then it comes out in San Francisco this Friday. Oh, great. Great. Where in San Francisco? Which theater? Do you know? Uh, which theater? Uh, yeah, I do know which theater. The Embarcadero. The Embarcadero in San Francisco. I've heard of that. That sounds like one of the great San Francisco theaters. Yeah, I think it's that and the Castro are the big ones. That sounds like a place where if you wanted to see a great, innovative, uh, and creative independent film is the place to go. Um, Cool. Well, listen, you're a busy guy. I want to say thank you so much for coming on Engage. I want to let people know that they can still like this movie and still respect NASA. Don't let the log line, don't let the little blurb scare you off. It's done with admiration and fun and a sense of uh, almost camaraderie for these problem solvers, even if it does posit that the moon landing never happened. <laughs> Is that a good way of saying it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be up to them to decide if, we, if this was sacrilege or just a lot of fun. And if they don't like it, they can yell at you on Facebook. Are you on Twitter? Do you tweet? How do we contact no, you? No, I don't. I don't, but they can scream at our distributor, Lionsgate. They can yell at Lionsgate. That's the yeah. way to do it. And uh, who knows? I mean, it's very possible that some fans of this show are going to listen to my words. They're going to watch Operation Avalanche, and they're going to be appalled. Yeah, you might hear about it as opposed to me. Yeah, yeah, and that's okay. I mean, I don't know. All I know is that when I saw it, I said, I love NASA, I love the late 60s, I love the 16-millimeter look, and I love 2001 A Space Odyssey, and this movie is playing in that sandbox. How can I not be in love with this? Yeah, Even if it does take one of the things that's closest to my heart, which is our achievements in space, and take a big whiz on it, even if it does that, I still love the movie. So with that, I say thank you for taking the time to talking with us today. And um, <laughs> go out there and, and, and uh, make more stuff. I look forward to watching the show. Hey, thanks a lot, Jordan. I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, we'll talk later. Bye. Bye-bye.
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.